Welcome back to The Sound of Southern Charm Season 2, where we're exploring the ideas other people pack in their career suitcases that have made them successful so far. Today's guest is a straight shooter in sales. Hank Ballard's success story happened while literally cleaning up other people's messes. I met Hank right around 15 years ago, and I'm excited to learn more about his award-winning career. Hope you're paying attention out there. I think he's going to bring home some important reminders for all of us in our business attitude. Hank, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, been looking forward to doing this. So when I met you all those years ago, I remember thinking, this guy's got life figured out. You work hard and you play hard too. I want to know how you got there. What was your first job you ever had? Well, obviously I was a pretty good actor because to say I had my act together is, uh, <laughs> that's kind of a stretch. But my first job actually was working in a golf course, uh, hauling golf carts back and forth from the cart bin to the office. Did you get tips for that? Got some tips, got a lot of conversations, hung out in the office with a lot of uh, older guys in the pouring down rain when they couldn't play golf. It was a it was a very interesting start. Yeah, so I got to imagine that you probably gleaned a lot just from those simple conversations with those, what I would assume are business folks and retirees and other guys sort of in the community out on the course. Exactly. And uh, uh, one of them was the retired superintendent of schools, uh, Malcolm Brown. I remember him very well. And uh, I was 14, 15, I think, when he passed away. And I told my mother that I was going to his funeral. And she was like, what do you mean? You're, you don't know him. I'm like, oh, yes, I do, actually. For the last several years, I've worked with him, and uh, it's time for me to pay my respects. My mom looks back at that, mentions it a couple of times about how uh, that really got me going on doing the right thing. What else do you think you kind of learned from that job working on the golf course? Really just that you had a responsibility. You had a show time to be there. A lot of times we had large tournaments. So we had to be there at 530, 6 o'clock in the morning to get things set up. Uh, we had a lot of uh, large events, but then there was the majority of the time was the monotonous, slow, you're there, there's 10 people coming, it's misting rain and it's 40 degrees and you're just, you're just stuck trying to fill that time with uh, something productive because there's not a lot of production you can do on a golf course when it's pouring down rain and cold, but you still have to keep the doors open. So that was a, it was a challenge. It's definitely a learning experience. Yeah. And you didn't have cell phones at that point that were rampant in use. So you had nothing to just kind of sit there and endlessly scroll. We didn't have cable TV on the TV in the pro shop. It's a little different world back then. I mean, we had a cash register that you pushed in the buttons and uh, it was uh, definitely different. You would go vacuum the showroom there with all the clubs and things because you had nothing else to do. Oh, wow. And, uh, there was no, hey, let's look on Facebook or Twitter and see what's going on. Check my LinkedIn account. No, out the window, looking at the rain and watching the clock. Right. So was that the uh, only job that you had before you kind of went off to college or did you do anything else? Yeah. Yep. Actually, I was there for, I uh, started when I was 13 and a half because I was the earliest they could actually pay someone on the clock. I worked at that golf course until I went to college. Wow. I'm going to say three days before I went to school was my last day working at the golf course. Wow. That's impressive that you were wanted to be there that long. It was definitely interesting. I mean, I grew some really strong bonds with some of the folks I work with, and it's pretty cool. Some of the guys that worked for me, because as I went along, I uh, became assistant pro there basically and doing the administrative stuff and hiring the new cart guys to take over. Uh, one of those guys is actually a member of the band Parmalee now. Okay. And uh, stay in communication with him, which is pretty cool because, I mean, he was just a really cool, small-looking guy that – kind of hung out and did his, th his own thing. It's really great to see he's had such success when it's starting working in a stupid golf cart. Yeah. And it's, but it's really, you know, you were kind of learning pretty early on about how to just have conversations with people. I mean, and that's, it's really kind of what sales is anyway, is just, you know, having those conversations and you were learning that as a teenager and probably didn't even realize it. I would imagine. Exactly. It was, Learning, listening, not a lot of talking, because to be honest, a 55 or 60-year-old man really doesn't care what a 15-year-old kid has to say or 16-year-old kid has to say. Right. But if you're quiet, you can listen to the, the, the old guys talking, and you can learn a good bit just, just kind of hanging out in the back, paying attention. Sure. 
All right. So I know that you're a Wake Forest grad and proud of it. And so why did you decide to go to that school? I really didn't make that decision. Okay. Um, there's pictures of me when I was, uh, I don't know, three months old wearing a Wake Forest shirt. <laughs> My family has very strong ties to the university. I think I was the fifth generation to go there. Oh, wow. Uh, my great-grandfather was the chairman of the board of trustees when they moved from Wake Forest, North Carolina, to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Oh, wow. He was uh, in charge of the fundraising and uh, did a lot of negotiations with R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company and several others to secure the land and things of that nature. There's a really cool picture that floats around. You can see it every now and again for the groundbreaking where uh, Harry Truman was doing the first dig of the shovel, and my great-grandfather, Mr. Mole, was right beside it. Wow. So kind of nice. Absolutely. When you went off to college, did you have any kind of plan in action for what you were going to do as a career? Oh, I had a 100% plan. I was going to Wake Forest as a physics major, and I was going to come out and have the next greatest, latest invention in physics as far as making a machine that can do something cool that I learned in physics. All the way until I went into my first physics class, I placed into third semester. Okay. And professor started talking about all these strange functions and tangents and started writing on the board. And it was, I raised my hand. I'm like, excuse me, sir, what is that? And he goes, uh, that's calculus. I went, really? He was like, have you ever had calculus? I said, no, sir. He said, uh, come on down here, son. I've got a drop slip for you so you can... Uh, <laughs> Go do something else. That's pretty blunt. Oh, yeah. It was very blunt. <laughs> and uh, I walked down to the bottom of the classroom and got my little sheet of paper, and I walked my happy ass out of there and went, hmm, now what? Right. I had never taken calculus and had never really wanted to. Sure. And so I just kind of stumbled around for a year or so and tried to figure out what I wanted to do, trying to get out my early classes that you're required. Sure. And then started going into the politics, which ended up being my major. Okay. But it's interesting. While I was there, I figured out that just like I did in the golf shop, idle hands is the devil's workshop. Okay. You don't have anything to do. You're going to come up with something to do. Right. And uh, I uh, had a really good time. Okay. And I realized I needed something to do. Sure. And I actually got a job working on campus. Okay. And what and was that? Working construction. I was literally a laborer for a masonry company that was working on site building a new dorm. I was a fine executive in the cleaning industry. I pushed a broom okay. for a couple of weeks and then started working with uh, brick masons, not working with them. I was picking up cinder blocks and handing them to them. So uh, a uh, transportation distribution executive there. <laughs> And then I made the unfortunate mistake of uh, was working with one of my fraternity brothers at the time. And we were asked, hey, guys, do you know how to run a concrete pump? And me being an honest Southern gentleman went, no, I have no idea. Good for you. My fraternity brother goes, oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Five minutes later, my buddy John is standing on top of this mechanical concrete pump okay. down on the uh, ground floor on the dirt, in the shade, basically. And I'm on top of scaffolding, running the other end, pouring concrete out of a hose into the cinder block walls. Okay. For eight hours. And we figured out that it was 170-something yards of concrete pumped over my shoulder into these little holes. And a yard of concrete, of course, weighs 2,000 pounds. So uh, that was a long day, <laughs> dragging through the hose around. Right. But, uh, I learned pretty quick. I said, hey, equipment, that's a good idea. Okay. It's a lot better than doing things by hand. Sure. And over the next couple of years, I continued to work for the university's construction department and started learning to operate these machinery, these machines. Okay. Bobcats, backhoes, big forklifts, compaction equipment. I mean, just anything with an engine. Sure. I learned how to operate it and use it in the field. Right. And, of course, we're going to school. So I graduated. Well, before then, even I was working tendon bar and bouncing at a, a local sports club. Great experience working as a bartender at the same time. Sure. But I graduated and went, all right, we'll go uh, 
continue to work for the university doing construction because when I graduated, I was making $12.50 an hour as an equipment operator. Nice. Which back then, that was huge money. Yeah, absolutely. 96, that was pretty good money. Or 95, I mean. Yeah. Um, so I started work, just working construction during the day and then tending bar at night. Did that for a while, but uh, fate intervened when uh, December of that year, I managed to catch mono. Oh, Something about 40 hours a week during the day construction, 30 hours a week tenant bar and bouncing, burning the candle on both ends, a third end, got pretty sick and uh, realized, you know, insurance would be a really cool thing to have. Oh, because the construction company wasn't providing it at that point. Oh, no, no, no. There was no insurance benefit for an hourly construction guy. And also I realized that equipment's great, but somebody put this stuff to the university. Somebody sold it to the university or rented it to them. And so I was sitting actually at the bar that I was working at at the time when I finally got out of Romano and uh, started going through the wall ads, literally in the paper. Okay. The first one I saw was for a company called Sunbelt Rentals. And I was like, hey, these guys are renting the equipment to them. It makes sense. And we actually were getting stuff from them at the time. I said, it's a great idea. Let me go call these guys. Went and did my interview, and I remember it distinctly walking back to my car going, I didn't get that job. Oh, really? Why do you think you didn't? Why did you feel that way? It was just one of those interviews where you could tell they were looking for short guy with red hair that was left-handed and was their buddy, and they knew who he was. Okay. And they were just filling in the bubble. Gotcha. I went, well, that didn't work. So I went back to the bar that I was working at, fixed me some lunch, had a drink, Sat there and opened the paper, and there was an ad right below theirs for prime equipment. Okay. You know what? Let's just do this. Called the guy, and he said, hey, come on down. Let's do an interview right now, which- That doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't happen anymore, and it really doesn't happen when you've sat and had a couple beers at a bar trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Probably thinking back, it probably would have been good to be wearing a mask at that time, so- uh, I went and brushed my teeth and hopped back in my car and drove down there and interviewed with Prime Equipment and started to work uh, the next week. Oh, wow. They hired me on the spot. Wow. And you had never really kind of been in sales. Like I said, we talked about your experience on the golf course, but this is your first time sort of in that position. Did they give you any kind of training or any kind of mentors or they just said, here's a book, figure it out? They didn't even say, here's a book. They said, look, there's uh, all this equipment out there. And people are going to want to rent it from us or buy it. And they're going to call on the phone and you're going to answer it. And you're supposed to sell it to them. Uh, here's your book with the pricing. Okay. And you can do 10% off max. More than that, you got to get somebody's approval. Okay. And that's your job. And oh, by the way, you're also supposed to dispatch all the deliveries and tell these 55, 60-year-old men who drive these trucks where to go and what to do and how to do it. Have a nice day. Oh, yeah. So a little bit of a uh, trial by fire here. Yeah. I was a 22 year old kid that had uh, never had a management type position before, really. Right. I mean, you can't consider being 16 and telling a 14 year old what to do. I mean, that's kind of like having a little brother. Right. But I kind of just jumped in it and started. I, I knew what most of the machinery did, and the phone rang. Guy wanted a machine. I kind of knew the basics. I mean, it's not rocket science work. I mean, it's what do you want? Where do you want it? When do you need to have it there and uh, how much you willing to pay for it? Yeah, but I, I think you're, from my perspective, I think you're kind of understating the fact that you kind of already knew what all this equipment did. If I were to go apply for that job right now, they'd be like, you know, tell me what this piece of equipment does. And I'd be like, I don't know. Or if somebody called me on the phone, well, can it do this? I have no idea. So the fact that, you know, they didn't really give you anything to sort of work with or work from, they just said here is pretty impressive, Hank. Well, thank you. I mean, I knew the majority of the stuff uh, working for the university on the construction side. I had ran and operated a good amount of the machinery, but there's a difference of knowing the top four or five machines to getting down into the minutiae of generators and pumps and things like that. And it was a lot of just learn and some of the manufacturers provided training, Okay, which I jumped on and took anything I could get because knowledge is power. I've always figured that out. And You can only do so much learning from a piece of paper on something like that. You've got to go play with it. Right. So I would go hop in the machines and drive them around the yard to figure out how they work. Nice. And have fun usually while doing it, I hope. 
Yes, big toys. I mean, there's a reason why guys do this for a living is because, hey, they enjoy the machinery. They enjoy the big toys and, hey, my machine's bigger than yours, that kind of thing. (laughs) All right. So when we met, you were not with that particular company anymore. You had already started working at Sunbelt. What kind of led to that transition? Well, they had hired the person that they wanted who I found out was the guy that had the position at Prime Equipment. Okay. Uh, so I took his spot. Well, the guy that they moved over, he went out in the sales field. Sunbelt tracked me back down and offered me a whopping $2,000 additional oh. per year to go uh, work for them doing the exact same job. Okay. And I jumped on it like a crazy person. I want to say I started, in, it was the middle of basketball season in, two, in 96. Okay. So I was at Sunbelt for like three months and then jumped over to, or I was at Prime for three months, jumped over to Sunbelt and then ended up staying there for 18 years. Wow. And did they remember interviewing you in the previous months or was it just sort of oh, they yeah. called you out of the? Oh yeah. They knew 100% who I was and what I was doing and how I was doing at Prime. And they were very familiar. It was a, uh, it was, it was kind of odd, but it was kind of a uh, foreshadowing for that industry and all industries. Everybody knows everybody else. Uh, there's a great myth that people don't know who you are. Well, once you've been in the industry or any industry, people start figuring it out. And this was before LinkedIn and Facebook and all that stuff. So it was, uh, it was interesting. Yeah, you bring up a, a great point that everybody knows somebody and. I'm assuming that that really kind of helped you move up with Sunbelt. I imagine a quick way because they picked you up after just three months. So I imagine things kind of moved pretty quickly for them in general and in this industry. They do. And uh, that industry was really growing and diversifying at the time. And I want to say 15, 16 competitors in the market. And it was, it was growing immensely. But when I went over to Sunbelt, it became very obvious after the first year or so that I was young, single, I lived in an apartment by myself, and I had no qualms moving quickly somewhere else. When I moved from Greensboro to Raleigh to become a sales rep, that was kind of the start of not really being a hired gun, but being a hired gun. I would go to the sales territories that were underperforming and go work with uh, the customers in that market. And I don't think I stayed in a geographic market for a year. Wow. Then I'd get moved to a different area. Like right now, I'm sitting in a hotel in Raleigh, in North Raleigh. That The North Raleigh territory is the only one out of in Raleigh that I didn't cover when I worked here. Oh, wow. I covered South Raleigh. I covered East. And then I went, excuse me, a little bit. I uh, worked a lot downtown, but I never went up North. Oh, okay. Because the rep there was doing well. The rep in the South was doing horrible. So I ended up taking over his area after a while. After a little while, they started opening new locations and gave me an opportunity to be a manager. So I packed up and moved to Fayetteville, North Carolina to open a store down there as a store manager instead of a sales rep. Oh, okay. And really chased that idea because at that time I was the youngest store manager in the company. Sure. And after a year, I was the first one to get a new store profitable in six months. Wow. Which is a pretty big deal to get good margin and profitability in six months. So I had to hire all the people that were running at the store, the sales reps, the truck drivers, mechanics, things of that nature. Yeah. It was an adventure and everybody, of course, much older than me. Sure. So I mean, I'm mid twenties and everybody else is in their forties and fifties. But again, it was a lot of exposure of just trying to do the right thing with people. And when that happens, you end up getting noticed. Right. And ended up moving to Durham. They had had a big exodus from the store there. It's like I said, everybody knows everyone. Well, another company had came in and into that market and took three quarters of the employees out of that store. Oh, poached them. Yes, they were poached. And my manager was like, "Uh uh-oh, what am I going to do? Right. Hey, Hank, you want to move to Durham? (laughs) Well, things are going great here. Why would I want to go do that? Right. Because you're young and stupid. So young and stupid, here I go. Looking back on it, very bad idea. Shouldn't have done that, but I did. Okay. And rehired the staff there a couple of times and then uh, kept trying to get the right thing accomplished, but it just stuck behind the eight ball. Every time you move, there was something else, a little surprise left by the uh, previous administration. Oh, yep. Got massively burned out and uh, 
started doing some fun things, but trying to again single living on my own, it was it was starting to get a little wearisome. Just the responsibility, all those people. At this time, I think I was like twenty six, twenty five, something like that. Okay, so you weren't in Fayetteville very long then. I was there for two years. I remember distinctly moving to Durham in uh, Y2K. When Y2K hit, I was working in Durham. Okay. And the next month, I was in Winston-Salem as a sales rep. So Y2K, February, I went back into sales in Winston-Salem and loved it. Getting back into the sales territory after being a manager, I had really picked up and polished the sales skills and doing a lot better and uh, greatly enjoyed it. So what do you think were some of those skills that you polished up between being a manager and going back to sales? A lot of it is personal interaction and realizing that the everybody jokes about, well, the customer is always right. Well, no, the customer is not always right. But you have to take care of your customer even when they're wrong. And that was a, a big difference that I learned. And also that uh, everybody's trying to do the same thing. If it's your customer, then I was selling to, like uh, Shellco was a large customer of ours. Those guys wanted to do the same thing I did. They wanted to do their job, put out a good product, be safe, and go home. Right. And there wasn't any conflict with what we were trying to do. I was trying to provide stuff for them so they could do their job and go home. And they needed to get a piece of equipment. And it was really started developing that partnership idea so 2001, I'm in Winston, get married, which is wonderful. Love of my life, yeah. Miss Christy. And uh, moving was gone. I didn't, no more moving, no more picking up and moving somewhere else across the state. So I worked in Winston-Salem and Greensburg, going in different territories for a while that were uh, in somewhat states of ill, <laughs> Ill preparedness. They were trouble. I'll admit I kind of got a little bored because okay. I can do, you can only do something for so long before you start getting a little bit bored. And they, they had an opening with the uh, power and pump system uh, stores, pump and power with some belt. And I put in and took a transfer to there out of Raleigh. I was still covering my same area, basically, in Greensboro, Southern Virginia. But doing big projects, a lot of design build work, which I had never done before. I had been on the other end. I was the guy doing the work right, or just providing the equipment. But I was really put in as the guy who was designing systems to designing projects, uh, managing people, and then, of course, selling it to get it going. Sure. And that was another kind of eye-opening experience of being the expert and really becoming partners with customers and clients and engineering companies and cities and EPA and train companies, all these weird things I never saw that was involved, really got involved with that. Wow. What do you think were maybe one or two of the, the biggest projects you sort of helped design? Uh, Lynchburg, Virginia was the uh, largest one I uh, did. Okay. can't remember the year at this point, but it was one of the shovel-ready projects that came up during uh, one of the uh, housing crisis. And it went from one end of the river in Lynchburg, Virginia, all the way down to the other end of Lynchburg, Virginia, the treatment plant. Okay. And I designed that whole temporary system that we put in. It was a two and a half year job. I want to say it was like five million for Sunbelt. Wow. The largest project on the East Coast at its time. Sure. And it was huge. It was, uh, we were doing 73 million gallons a day uh, down towards the end of the project. And we ran into all kinds of challenges. At the max, I probably had five guys working for me equipment or project manager kind of guy that was there doing a lot of the work, uh, several laborers. Then I had uh, five to six employees of another company, the actual contractor that were working for me. And I was literally project manager, job superintendent, uh, estimator, the whole gamut of, I, I was doing all of it. And it was quite funny. I mean, the weather didn't make a difference. We were there when the uh, James River froze over. I'd never seen that happen before. And being in North Carolina, that's not a common occurrence. No. And uh, we ran in all sorts of adventures. Uh, we we're right beside a railroad. So when the when I say right beside, I mean right beside. I could uh, throw a paper airplane and hit a train as it went by. <laughs> and we were 
30 feet away at uh, the closest we were. And when one of those trains come rolling through with the double stack containers, it's an adventure. But we're sitting there trying to put pipe together and 10 degree weather with trains coming by. And you're literally in the middle of nowhere beside a river. It's, uh, it's an adventure. So did that project for a couple of years, along with other projects I had going on that would come up. And we also did a lot of hurricane chasing, which is a uh, odd thing for anyone to want to go to a hurricane. But we did it right because the other part of our business was power generation. Right. And temporary. So a lot of our sales focus during the non-season was with these companies that did major restoration work. Okay. I had several that I worked with in the, the off years after disaster and uh, serve pro and folks like that, that we worked with pretty heavily and building those relationships of, Hey, put us in your book when you need us. And you reach up for that file on your shelf saying, all right, hurricane hit, we lost power. What do we do? Right. You want our name and phone number on top of that list. So speaking to that point, I hear you keep saying us. So was it always a situation where you were always pushing the company and not you specifically? It always started with the company because that is obviously who I worked for. Right. But then once you got past that, it was me specifically because, and I didn't realize that difference until eight, nine years working there. Uh, Because sales is one of those things where people like dealing with people they like. Sure. And that is one of the biggest things with with sales. And I kind of figured that out working there in Lynchburg that really kind of dawned on me finally. And it was like, look, you can trust me to answer the phone at 3 a.m. and get in my truck and go do what I need to do. Yes, you're calling the company and the guy from the company. But calling me is better than calling my competitor who is working for another company. Right. I really started stressing that when I was really after that Lynchburg job, because there were things that I did that nobody else would have done. That's really started separating what I thought was more of my process of, yes, I work for Sunbelt Rentals, but I'm a different guy. You call me, you're going to get what I do. Right. What I do is different. And here's why. And that really started developing more and more of the, the sales professionalism, if you will, was trying to tie these accounts and projects and companies with me. Right. Instead of just Sunbelt. And uh, it, it, it worked. It really did because people start realizing that they can trust you. And then it just kind of opens up the gamut of you don't get a uh, call saying, hey, I need you to bid this, this and this. And they say, hey, I've got a job for you. Here's the specs. And that's a huge difference. Yeah, the the whole bidding process is sort of left to the wayside because they know you can do the work at that point. Exactly. Sometimes the, you always see the T-shirt a lot. What is it? The value of uh, the value of a cheap job versus the value of a uh, my personal value. I mean, there's all sorts of little things like that, but it's true. You pay a little bit more and get a better product. Well, once you've worked with someone for a while, you can get a little bit more money because they trust you for doing what you're supposed to do. They know you'll be there when it's pouring down snow when you're trying to finish the job up. Right. Now I was in Lynchburg, it was, it was 18 inches of snow on the ground, and we're trying to figure out what to do. Right. Um, didn't just throw my hands up in the air and leave. I got it taken care of and fixed. So it sounds like, you know, you did quite a bit of things and, you know, from chasing hurricanes to just designing projects to just being a, a salesman, you really kind of grew up with Sunbelt. What made you decide to pursue your next opportunity at Neil Fisk, where you are now? That really wasn't on me. That was kind of a God thing. I uh, had been with Sunbelt forever and had gone up to New York for Hurricane Sandy and was up there for a couple of weeks and did a lot of projects up there, 14, 18, 20-hour days, driving two hours back and forth every day to Manhattan to work. And was just exhausted and burned out. Got home. My lovely bride had a uh, Christmas party for her company up at Primland Golf Resort. Okay. Went up there and uh, still exhausted and tired from being in New York. Lady sat beside my wife and just started talking to her. It's like, hey, my husband's a recruiter. And my wife was looking to get me out of that position anyway and get me a little happier. I ended up talking to that recruiter that weekend and I interviewed with him on Monday. I interviewed with the Nilfus representative on Wednesday. Okay. And was on well on my way of that new position with Nilfisk in two weeks. So what made you think that Nilfisk in that short amount of time, just jump the gun and go for it? 
it was a challenge. It was something I hadn't done before. I knew a little bit about the products. Sunbelt rented a lot of different things. We always used to joke about our catalog was somewhat thicker than our brain cells sometimes. <laughs> um, so we were literally renting weed eaters to 27-ton cranes and little bitty generators to run your car or uh, run a uh, tailgate site at the Wake Forest game to generators that would run Baptist Hospital. And we had to know everything in between. Sure. And the idea of going to work for a company who just cleaned floors, and they didn't actually do it. They made the machines to do it. And that that kind of tripped my trigger a little bit. Uh, traveling was another thing that I was like, you know, you hear about the traveling salespeople, and I had never really traveled very much. And I was like, you know, this is much more of a professional sales gig than what I have been doing. I really wanted that challenge of, can I do it? Number one. And number two, uh, what sort of experiences and adventures are going to be out there for it? So I, I rolled the dice and took the deal and started with very little information and uh, took the job. And my boss, Joe, said, hey, man, you need to go to this address to get your car or your truck. They'll have your truck sitting there. So I went and turned in my notice at Sunbelt. They were stunned. They did not see it coming. And uh Asked them if they'd give me a ride to where my truck was, which happened to be at one of their biggest competitors. Oh. Yes. Caterpillar Equipment is a big competitor to Sunbelt. And uh, Nilfisk at that time had a, the cat was also a dealer there in Raleigh. So that's where my truck was. So I actually got my boss, old boss, to take me to pick up my new truck. And he was willing to do that. He was willing to do that because I explained to him what I was doing and where I was going. When I first told him that he needed to drop me off at my new job at CAT, he obviously had a problem with that. Well, sure. Then, then I explained what I was doing. He was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, no worries. Hop in, let's go. Because you never burn the bridge behind you because sometimes you got to retreat. Yep. So I was I was above board and went and did that. He got me to roll it to the uh, store to pick up my truck and... Uh, Came home and I actually did finish a couple of projects for Sunbelt while I was transitioning because a lot of those things aren't projects you can just walk away from. And I made sure I did the right thing and and took care of what I needed to do. But it goes back to what he was saying to you and, and what you mentioned here was, you know, you don't burn those bridges. So even, you know, you choosing to do that was just another way of showing who you are and your character that you weren't going to leave anybody hanging. Right. No, you can't do that because you never know what's going to happen. And so many years in that industry, everybody knows everybody else. And every company that's come in and out of the North Carolina market, I mean, they know everybody in the area. So it's a, you, you really can't do that. And because then it gives everybody a bad taste to your name and you only have one name. Right. And it's it's the one uh, we everybody jokes about the football teams playing for the name on the back of the jersey instead of the front of the jersey, that kind of thing. The name on the back of a jersey in, in business is the only one you have. The one in the front will change, but the one on the back, that's all you got. Right. So that was a big, big deal to me to make sure I did the right thing when I left. Because I had only been from one company, really, the whole time. So Right. But going to Nelfisk was a great thing. I've learned <laughs> even more. It's one of those things, if you quit learning, then you kind of quit living. So to this day, I still read Business books, sales management books, sales training books, uh, trying to stay up. Because when I first started with Sunbelt and sales, you had a territory guide okay. that you put together. It was a notebook, a three-ring binder that was about three inches thick. And it had maps of where your territory was. And it had locations that you put in on where the jobs were okay, and where you went on customers. And you had a three-inch binder for each area of your territory. And then you had a stack of phone books and you had a uh, big map book that you had that you carried around so you knew kind of where to go. And from there, now I have all of that in my sales territory management program, CRM, if you want to call it. Sure. Um, we use Salesforce at Nilfisk and it's just that huge change from way back when to when you had it, everything written down on a sheet of paper to now all on your iPad, your phone, your laptop. Right. And it's, it's that constant learning. And that's been a very interesting thing with Nelfus. It's given me a little bit of time to really do some more learning as I go. What I do now is build distribution dealers, guys that sell it on the street every day, and work supporting them and training those their sales reps and working with them hand in hand. Wow. And then at the same time, I go and do my own direct sales. Usually when I get involved doing a direct sale, it's uh, 
they're usually pretty large projects. I mean, it's or events if, or buying cycles, if you will, quarter million, half million dollars or more. Usually, that's I do those directly. Okay. Especially if I mean, if it's something I discover, uh, supporting the dealers when they get big jobs like that. Obviously, we we're really happy to support our dealers in that. But it's still we still have a lot of things we have to do on our own. And as far as polishing your your sales skills, that's something you have to do every day. Right. What do you think makes you hungry to be successful? I'll wake up and see on the screensaver, on my phone, on my iPad and my laptop, picture of my wife and kids. My family really does support me in what I'm doing because obviously with, I've been here for almost eight years now. Well, that's a, I want to say right this year, I've got 40 nights on the road. Uh, last year, I probably did 85. So without having my family behind me and supporting me and my son's, Six, almost 16 now, which is scary, but he is very helpful at home and helps take care of mama and does the right thing. So they're doing that, knowing that I'm out here doing my thing, trying to support them as best I can. I grew up watching my dad go to work every day. He drove the same way to work every day for 35 years. From our house to PPG Industries every day. I never saw him have a sick day until uh, uh, really late in his career. I never saw him miss a day because of weather. Then that work ethic that I saw from my father was is huge because I see it every every day I wake up. I couldn't tell you last time I had a quote sick day. Sure, you, you just go and work. You do what you're supposed to do. I joke with my sales associate that uh, no matter what's going on in the background, uh, when you pull into your dealer's location, your customer site, and you open the door and your foot hits the ground, that's showtime. You are on stage. Right, and from the time you walk out of that truck. You have to be as happy and as supportive and easygoing and focused as as you can be, no matter what kind of train wreck is behind you. And you keep that emotion and that uh, enthusiasm through the entire time you're there engaging with the end user or the dealer until you get back into your vehicle. I mean, whether you've been up for 10 hours the night before doing training or you're, uh, you've got challenges going on at home or whatever it's it's showtime right and i kind of learned that watching my dad i mean he just he woke up ate his breakfast read the paper drank his soda got in the truck and went to work every day and to me that was that's what i'm supposed to do so that's what i've been doing it's kind of weird but that's really where it's come from the the showtime aspect is there's so many different things that go into sales and doing the right thing is nobody again like i said before they like to buy from people they like well if you're not an engaging and enthusiastic person and knowledgeable, no one's going to want to deal with you to begin with. That's true. And uh, I, I see it in when I go out with uh, dealer sales reps, guys that are somewhat successful or really not successful. I mean, it's like talking to Eeyore. You're like, come on, man, you got to have some zip, some pep to what you're doing. And if you don't, I mean, why are you here? Right. And that's one of the things I, because I do with Nilfisk, I have a sales associate that uh, I'm training and kind of bringing him up. He uh, graduated from Carolina a year and a half ago and working with him and kind of showing him. I mean, I mean, he's a great kid. He really is. He's learning immensely, but he's got all sorts of adventures going on at home. And I just joke with him I'm like, man, it's your foot hits that ground. It's showtime. Right. I mean, it's not like, what is it? Beetlejuice showtime. <laughs> yep. You have to have that enthusiasm and that enjoyment of what you're doing. You, when you, we, you and I first talked about doing this uh, uh, podcast, I started writing some things down. And one of them was that the two biggest things that I do in sales is having intent and having empathy. Okay. When I talk to someone for a business meeting or a sales call or whatever, I have an intent when I get there. I know what I want to do when I step out of that vehicle and go talk to them because I want to waste their time. And the other one is the empathy of, hey, I understand. I know you're tight on budget. You're tight on work. You're tight on everything you're trying to do. I really understand. And my enthusiasm is very empathetic of, I get it. What can we do together to make it easier? And that's a lot of sales and sales professionalism or whatever the fancy terms they use these days in the sales books, if you will. Sure. But if you're not enthusiastic and you don't have empathy and you don't have intent in your sales calls, you don't have anything. And uh, it's, it's been real fun. It's been kind of invigorating training this uh, new sales rep because he's a, 
kind of a blank slate. And if I can just get a little bit into them as far as having a reason to be there, having an empathetic but enthusiastic approach. Right. I really think it's make a big difference moving down the road. And he's done great. I think hopefully part of part of what I've said stuck and part of it's hopefully useful. Right. It's interesting. And things have changed so much over the years. And one of the things we were talking about before was how things have changed, but there's still the same principles of people buy from who they like. They like being around like-minded individuals, whether or not it costs more or less. A lot of times it doesn't make a difference if they actually like who they're working with. So how do you go about maintaining your client relationships? Are there any sort of general rules that you follow or is it sort of You know, everybody's different, but how do you sort of generally maintain your client relationships? Well, before COVID, I would say it involved a lot of face-to-face meetings and being involved with what they're doing, learning what keeps them up at night and what you can do to help calm that down a little. Obviously, COVID's a challenge because we can't have as much personal interaction as we used to. But the main thing is figuring out what you can do to help them. And as far as maintaining it, is keeping that connection going, whether it's being, I don't know, I've got some guys I'm friends with on Facebook, I'm connected to on LinkedIn. And my bosses wouldn't, would kind of joke hearing me say this, but using Salesforce, I have made sure I have a good contact cadence with everyone. Keeping that contact is really all about making sure you give a crap. And the customer realizes, hey, this guy actually does care. He's not just here for his dollar. And one of the things is is listening more than talking. And when you do that, you can actually hear them talking about other sales reps they work with and other vendors they work with. And they will tell you exactly how they want to be sold to by what they say about the other vendors. Because they say, hey, I can't believe this guy called me and raised Kane about this, that, and the other. Man, I buy from him, not the other way around. Why is he being like that? You hear those conversations and you back your head. All right, don't do that. Moving on. And being involved, not just in your customer's business, but knowing about who they are as a person, knowing about what they do. I've got one of my uh, clients is he works as a uh, volunteer rescue squad member, drives a rescue squad uh, on the weekends, which is a uh, kind of an odd pastime if you ask me, but he loves doing it. Right. And I've got others that spend their time traveling to football games all over the country because they want to see all the stadiums in Power Five college schools. I mean, all sorts of weird things like that. But having that engagement of not only knowing and having intent for your business, but that personal connection as well. Sure. Back in the day when you first started in sales, some of the early sales books people read like Zig Ziglar and others. It's when you sit down, you look and try to figure out what their buying cues are and what their personal cues. You look around their desk and see what's sitting on their desk or what's behind their desk. What are they showing up on their I love me wall in their office? I mean, I walked into one guy's office in uh, Raleigh and he had pictures of himself and parachute. And he is literally falling in one of those star formations. Got it. You know, we see on TV these parachute people that have lost their minds or jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. And it's a picture, and it's you can see it's him. Yeah, and he's in that star falling out of an airplane. All right. Obviously, as soon as you ask him, "Hey, man, that, that's really cool. Do you do that?" Well, there's 30 minutes of the guy talking to you about what he does. Right. And sometimes the guys really get engaged, and hey, man, you really ought to try this or do this or this is who you can talk to or whatever. Sometimes it's like talking to a stick, but. Usually, if you're talking to a stick, you're really not talking to the right person for uh, your business intent anyway. Right. That's a good point. Yeah, you kind of got to move on because these days everybody has the gatekeepers and the uh, the evaluators and things of that nature that are just there to get the bottom dollar, which is part of sales. You've, you've got to deal with it. But at the same time, you run into them. That's not really who you want to be working with. Gotcha. Well, Hank, you've given people a lot to keep in mind when they're going out and doing their sales jobs or considering sales. But one thing I want to get from you before you go is uh, you were talking about some books and things that you've read kind of through the years. Are there any books that really kind of stick out to you that you would think people would get a lot of benefit from? Well, I mean, there's several. Um, The one I'm reading right now is Beyond Selling Value. It's a Mark Shkona, I don't know what his real, how to pronounce his name, but the name of the book's Beyond Selling Value. That's one that I've 
read now, and it's, it's really interesting about trying to get out of the vendor trap. But there's a lot of different podcasts and videos and YouTube videos and things like that from some different folks. Uh, obviously, the beginning is Zig Ziglar and the things that he put together back 50 years ago. I mean, he was kind of the start of, of the uh, sales mentorship, if you will. Okay. Ryan Steumann's another one who's really good. But he almost says the same thing that Ziegler said, just he says it in a more current fashion. Okay. Nowadays, everybody is worried about building their sales funnel and their pipeline and things of that nature. Yep. Steumann goes into a lot of that very well. But it's the same thing as having an active network of customers who have projects coming up, which is something more of a Ziegler world. But Steumann has more flair and tattoos and things of that nature, and he impacts a little bit better. There are multiple two guys. And the other thing that I do, and I really recommend to new reps, is reading some of these business books. Not the true business, how would you say this? Not really the true business investigation, but almost biographies of businesses. And Hyper Bush, there's a couple of books about them on the rise and fall and rise again, if you will, of Anheuser-Busch in the United States. Very interesting business read on the human level, on kind of how things work. Okay. Glock Firearm, uh, most folks know good old Glock. His rise in the manufacturing industry as far as firearms. The story behind him is very interesting. He wasn't a salesman. He wasn't a... Uh, a shooter or anything like that. He literally designed the first Glock in his basement or his garage, I think, test firing with his left hand. So if it blew up, it didn't screw up his drafting hand, his right hand, so he can write. Wow. He, he was an odd duck. He really was or is. But um, some of his business practices were very cutting edge for a guy who really wasn't a business guy. Yeah. Another one that was very interesting to me uh, has a very special place in both our hearts. VeggieTales, the creator of VeggieTales. Uh, my man Bob and Larry and I am that hero Larry boy. Big Idea Production, I think is the name of their company. Very interesting story about them growing up and how they were growing their business and the mistakes they made and the pitfalls that they made. It, reading up on those guys and, and kind of these, not really titans, but real people. Yeah. And what they've done, um, and even some TV series as it came out about, I think it's the men who built America back in the turn of the century and before Vanderbilt and Ford and Carnegie, uh, those guys. I mean, reading up and learning about how things were done. Well, yes, a little bit cutthroat, a little different business model than we would do nowadays with the whole monopoly thing. Sure. But the history of, of what's going on and how these folks build their business. Now, of course, you've got uh, Jeff Bezos and uh, Bill Gates and those folks. I mean, I know that uh, how kind of how they came to be, but of course, with them being very contemporary, there's not a lot of information out there on uh, really their background on how things happened. And You read uh, or watch the movies and stuff on like Facebook and things like that. And you're like, wow, that's really crazy how they did that. Yeah. But the entrepreneurial spirit in the U.S. and all over the globe is something to kind of watch as a salesman to learn kind of how folks did these things. Think outside the box. A lot of those books, really, you can see they were really out of the box, but they worked. Okay. I guess that's kind of the the key is whatever works for you or as a person, that is the right thing if it works. Right. I cannot put on the, uh, the heavy Northern accent and have the bully pulpit type sales approach because I am a good old son of the South. I, I can't come off with that New Jersey attack. Right. That attack all type mentality. But there's something to be learned there. Right. And uh, put it all in the back in that toolbox that you're building every day. Yeah, you made a, a great point just in the simple fact of you got to learn and be willing to learn. So I think that's an important thing for, for people to keep in mind. You're not always going to know everything about whatever it is you want to do. Exactly. And, and you're also going to fail. You are not going to win every job. You're not going to win every project. You are going to fail. Gretzky always said that he missed every shot he didn't take. Yeah. Well, if you're going to miss it, you might as well take the shot anyway. Jordan isn't mad about or super excited about all the shots that he hit to win games. I mean, he knows the number of shots he missed to win a game. And even, even with me, I mean, I know there's things I'm going to miss. And you got to put it back in a, in a learning approach 
because otherwise they'll drive you crazy. Yeah. Especially right now, um, COVID and uh, election cycle and all this stuff packed on top of each other. It's created a very difficult business environment. The only way you're going to have any sort of success is kind of slowing down, being very intentful in what you're doing, being uh, another one of the things I try to do is be a persistently patient because things will happen and you just got to kind of roll with it. And faith is a big deal with me. I know with you, and we, we kind of lean back on our faith a lot. Yep. And it's uh, very important because you have to see that mirror every morning when you brush your teeth. And what we do professionally reflects on that image you see on that mirror. So in sales, you have to be able to deal with what you do. And I feel very comfortable in what I've done in my career so far. And I don't have to worry about looking in that mirror. And it's a, it's a challenge to go through business right now and, and have a smile on your face every day because it, it's an adventure right now. Well, Hank, I, I so appreciate all of your insight today. There's been so much information. I hope people really take the opportunity to listen to this and, uh, and not just once because there's just so much to sort of inhale in this interview. And, and I just I can't thank you enough for being here. And, and I really appreciate it. Oh, no, I really I appreciate the invitation and being able to kind of get some of this out a little and hopefully help someone down the road or but it, it really is. It's, it's what I've been doing for almost 25 years now. I really enjoy sales. And so people are in this world are seeing the, the clicks on Amazon and ooh, buy this, buy that. But in the reality, in the real world on large capital things, you got to have somebody to actually sell it. And that's not going to go away for centuries. Yeah. Someone has to sell these big things. It's just positioning yourself and doing the right thing. I guess that's about it. I mean, it's just do the right thing. Be able to look in the mirror. Of course, showtime hits when you're there in front of the customer. All right, Hank. Summed it up nicely. Thanks for your time. Yes, sir. Thank you.